0: To Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, You can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. The recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade has rightly drawn more attention to the ability of people who can give birth to access abortion. Now, it's important that we don't think about this uh, as some kind of uh, reactionary setback that could only happen in the United States. And in a recent article in Midnight Sun, um, you can find a link to this article in the show notes for the episode, Misha Falk argues that we should, in her words, understand our present situation as one of competing sexual hegemonies in other words, competing norms about gender and sexuality that are being advanced by different blocks of social forces around the world. One is, in her words, a reactionary sexual hegemony that seeks the criminalization or outright elimination of all modes of being that conflict with the norms of the white, Christian, cis-heterosexual nuclear family, including access to abortion. Now, although there's some ruling class support for that in the U.S. and to a lesser extent in the Canadian state, I think the the leadership of the forces that are working to impose a reactionary sexual hegemony um, come mainly from very right-wing elements of the middle class, the same kind of people who now control the Republican Party in the U.S. and who are the backbone of the People's Party in Canada, certainly with some influence in the Conservative Party as well. And the other rival project for sexual hegemony, which is supported by most of the ruling class in Canada and the U.S., is what Misha calls a liberal tolerance view that supports legal abortion and, in her words, LGBTQ ways of being that are protected through formal legal equality and hate crime laws. I think that in the next few years, we could well see growing support for reactionary politics of gender and sexuality, including moves to restrict abortion access in Canada, if its supporters are able to make the case that, as Misha puts it, all the suffering and uncertainty brought about by capitalist crisis, social division, and environmental collapse will go away if we simply return to more traditional categories of meaning. So I think this is a valuable time to look at the experience of organizing for reproductive justice in Canada in the 1980s, a movement that succeeded in striking down legal barriers to abortion access and then defeating an attempt by the Tory federal government to recriminalize abortion. And so I'm very happy on this episode of Victor's Children to be joined by Jocelyn Piercy, who wrote an excellent 2016 article called Canada, History and Strategies in the Fight for Reproductive Justice, which you can find linked in the show notes. So could you introduce yourself to listeners, Jocelyn?
1: Uh, Yes, thank you, David. Um, my name is Jocelyn. I'm coming to you from the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, Mississauga of the Credit, Chippewa, and Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people. Um, I was on the steering committee of the Ontario Coalition for Abortion Clinics in the late 80s and early 90s, um, before, during, and after the legislation governing abortion was overturned. Um, I was also an active in feminist, other feminist coalitions, like the International Women's Day Committee, and queer organizing such as Queer Nation, and Supporting AIDS Action Now activities, And uh, now work with the No Pride in Policing Coalition, a a multiracial abolitionist group of queer and trans folks in
0: Toronto. (laughs) Thank you. So can you take us back and explain uh, for listeners what the situation was like for people who wanted to access abortion services in Canada in the period from the late 1960s through to the end of the 1980s?
1: Yes, Sure. In terms of legal rights, abortion was against the law in Canada until 1969, completely against the law, um, which doesn't mean they didn't occur, of course. But one needed money and class status to get a safe abortion. Others tried and died trying, uh, trying to obtain an abortion, however they could. In 1969, the same year as the Stonewall Riot, um, Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau amended legislation around sexual and reproductive rights famously saying the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. However, um, it's actually a myth that either homosexuality or abortion were decriminalized in 69. Um, In terms of homosexuality, both anal sex and showing affection in public places was still against the law, and the number of people charged for for consensual homosexual acts actually increased after 1969. Um, Abortions, uh, which can be a simple medical procedure, um, uh, in the first trimester, were still criminal acts if performed outside of hospitals. And hospitals would only could only uh, perform an abortion if their therapeutic abortion committee, which was three doctors who had never met the patient or spoken with the patient, agreed that her pregnancy endangered her life or health. So at that time, only a third of the hospitals even had therapeutic abortion committees Um, and many of those that had the committees had never approved a single abortion. So although we want to see ourselves as a tolerant country whose government was one of the first to take on decriminalizing homosexuality and abortion, in truth, mass movements of people had to fight very long and very hard in the face of both right-wing and state repression to achieve these ends. Just going a little further, um, later on then, uh, in the after 1969, in 87, fully a half of women who received abortions in Canada had to leave their own communities. And to even access any abortion services, had to contact an average of five to seven medical professionals before receiving any help. No abortions were performed in PEI after 1982, and only one a gynecologist in Newfoundland was willing to perform abortions. Catholic hospitals, of course, refused. So consequently, Canada had a very high rate of second trimester abortions at that time, which are significantly more dangerous. Um, and young Indigenous racialized poor and rural women, as well as those without immigration status or with disabilities, continued to experience extreme barriers to access, if they could access these services at all. So many reports over this period, include, including the Badgley Report in 97 and uh, the Powell Report in 87, Thoroughly documented this inequality of access, which, of course, contravened the clear principle of equal access to health care services as laid out in the Canada Health Act. But, of course, if you had money, connections, and ability to travel, you could obtain abortion services. Five to ten thousand um, Canadians annually traveled to the U.S. in some of these years to have abortions. I recall the movement doing some fundraising to support Ontario women who needed to travel to Buffalo to, to obtain an abortion sometimes accompanied by an escort from the community. So there was some access in these years, but mostly for urban, white, educated, middle and upper class uh, women, but very little access to safe and timely abortion for others. Um, and, And also, I'd like to add that women's bodily autonomy was being denied in other ways as well. Indigenous and racialized women were disproportionately subjected to forced and coerced sterilization, and there was almost complete lack of childcare and other supports for women who wish to continue their pregnancy and have children. So control of our bodies and reproduction requires, of course, that, that we have control and support for all of these things.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you've, I think, blown away some myths very successfully in just answering that because, I mean, I think many, many people now do not know about people having to cross the border going south, right, um, to access abortion services. Like I can remember the chance from that time um, which referred to that I don't want to take a trip south of the border uh, which you know today right is uh, sounds very peculiar but um, that was that was certainly a reality and uh, thanks for also putting the, the issue in, in the broader context that you did. So in 1970 there was the abortion caravan which was an important moment in women beginning to organize for change uh, on this front. Can you talk a little bit about the caravan and what came after?
1: Sure um, I bu- I believe before 1969, there was some organizing around uh, broad perspectives of of, uh, reproductive justice. I'm thinking of the welfare mothers in particular, comes to mind. But yes, in 1970, uh, women from Vancouver uh, resurrected the Depression-era cross-country treks to Ottawa uh, with an abortion caravan that traveled to Ottawa, complete with coffins and coat hangers, which, of course, were symbols of backstreet abortions, but the often deadly but only option many women had at the time. Um, they demanded they, Their demand was free abortion on demand. And upon arrival in Ottawa, when politicians would not meet with them, they temporarily shut down Parliament when several dozen of them chained themselves to their viewing seats in the House and had to be slowly removed. So that was in 1970, and then... And then in 73, uh, Henry Morgenthaler started uh, publicly performing abortions. And over the next 15 years, he was charged and acquitted by four different juries, um, three in Quebec, one in Ontario. And in 1974, his legal challenge of the abortion law was taken up by the Canadian Association for Appeal of the Abortion Law, uh, or CARA. And CARA was, was formed by Norma Scarborough and others in Toronto, and incidentally it included my mother in Ottawa. Um, to protest the incarceration of Morgan Toller and abortion legislation under which he was prosecuted. They focused on, on the right to safe legal abortion as a human right and pursued a legal strategy to this end, organizing petitions, lobbying MPs, and working within structures set up by state lobbyists. So in my view, this, this strategy fails to address that rights are in name only for those without the material means to, to access those rights. And secondly, it places reproductive justice in a narrow framework of just abortion rights, which will only provide real control of one's body to mostly fairly rich, white, educated, middle-class women, i.e. those leading the movement at this ta- at that time. And third, it leaves unchallenged the perceived neutral character of the state and its legal and medical institutions, along with policing and incarceration, that target and control the lives of particularly Black, Indigenous, racialized And poor and unhoused women and trans folk. And I think um, thus, those who follow this sort of just narrow legal strategy do not see the need to build strong coalitions with others fighting repressive institutions and structures.
0: Right, so as you said, uh, Corral was a liberal feminist organization, but today a lot of people who know something about this history that we're talking about don't realize that there were also Socialist feminists and other feminists and socialists active around abortion and and other issues of reproductive justice. And in Toronto some of those people formed the Ontario Coalition for Abortion Clinics, or OCAC. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about OCAC and what its politics were like?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, It was formed in 1982 uh, by healthcare workers from the Birth Control and VD Information Centre, Immigrant Women's Health Centre, and Hassel Health Clinic in Toronto, um, and other health workers. And they took the position that women's unequal place in society was enforced by state repression and policing of bodies, especially racialized and disenfranchised bodies. So we needed a strategy that went beyond repealing the law and gaining legal rights, which is, as I mentioned, are only really gained in principle this way by professional and ruling classes. So I think we, we took on three main strategies um, that emerged from this approach. The first is rather than choice and pro-choice, as the movement was, was known, we moved towards access. As, as a key demand. So we'd already fought the fight at this point um, that had shifted the framework. Pro-choice did shift the framework of public debate from when does life start to women's right to control uh, our bodies. But still choice is stripped clean of power relations and, and any understanding of the state and its institutions and how they assert control and crush any real choice for populations they target and marginalize. So we demanded three things under access. First was full access to free contraception and abortion services in one's own language and community and not under medical control, um, given the race and class biases and assumptions of that institution. And to this end, we also demanded deregulation, not just decriminalization of pregnancy and childbirth. And then the second uh, thing, the second demand was support for women to determine for themselves when, if, and how to have children, including access to midwife services, free childcare and parental leave, affordable housing, employment equity, and an end to the harassment of indigenous and black mothers by courts, children's aid and children's aid where they're overrepresented in those systems. The third was for support to live openly as lesbians and and transgender people. Um, So we took on this, the demands of access and the second uh, or or framing the the demands under access. And the second um, strategy was to build broad alliances. So we recognized, um, we were trying to gain not just a legal right, but a transformation in how the state controls women and trans folks, um, especially in those who are Indigenous, racialized, poor, or who have disabilities. So we build a, a broad alliance across social movements. Um, movements like labour um, took up these access commands, and also perspectives generated in communities of struggle moved into the reproductive rights movement. So I recall when Sister Song, Collective of Black Women in Chicago in the mid-90s argued for a broader approach um, to to full reproductive justice that centred and fought for the needs of the most marginalized in the communities. Um, Many Indigenous and Black women experienced forced sterilization, lack of access to health care and child support, um, policing, over-policing, and gender and race-based violence as barriers in the way of reproductive rights. So these demands, not just access to abortions, are central to reproductive justice. In OCAC, we had heard this um, from women of color who we worked with in the, in the International Women's Day Committee um, and also learned how AIDS Action Now, for instance, put the needs of the most marginalized folks with HIV at the center of their demands, say, as opposed to the state who centered uh, the needs of, of uh, trans- not transmitting um, HIV to others. So building broad alliances um, was central to, to how we practiced. And the third focus, third strategy was taking on community clinics as the center for reproductive services as opposed to hospitals. So w- we went on the offensive and directly challenged the way state regulated institutions like hospitals controlled healthcare and regulated different women's access to it. So to this end, I mean, we were formed to support Dr. Morgenthaler when he opened a then-illegal community healthcare clinic to perform abortions on Harvard Street in Toronto in 18, 1983. So while Carol, while CARAL focused at the time on getting rid of therapeutic abortion um, committees to gain better hospital access to abortions, OCAC felt that a clinic strategy provided broader access to and control of reproductive services without the often racist regulatory frameworks and operating of hospitals. So in many different ways, the clinic actually became, the clinic, the physical presence of the clinic on Harvard Street became a symbol of women's resistance to control of our bodies by either state or the religious right. And throughout the struggle, the community would gather outside the clinic within minutes of either an attack or a victory, um, as it was seen as the community's clinic.
0: Right, and just for listeners, we <laughs> should just remember that, of course, this was when people had to organize by phone trees, right? Because there was no uh, no other way of getting the message out—flyers and, and phone calls. Can you say some more about um, the the kind of range of different kinds of tactics that OCAC um, engaged in as as part of the struggle, and maybe some of the things that it did to work with groups beyond Toronto that were like minded to, to try to shape the movement?
1: Sure. Um, our main focus was, of course, on organizing mass actions. Um, to force whatever government was in power to provide uh, equitable access to to reproductive services in one's own language and community. But we also opposed um, any right-wing racist and homophobic anti-choice activity, such as in 1992 when OCAC AIDS Action Now and Queer Nation teamed up to oppose the anti-choice, anti-homosexuality rhetoric of Cardinal Carter and uh, Reverend Ken Campbell. I remember the rousing chants then were racist, sexist, anti-gay, born again bigots go away. <laughs> um, there were also daily battles outside the Morgan and Scott clinics in Toronto as, as the right organized what they called Operation Rescues to block clients from entering the clinic. Um, the police could not be relied on to protect the, the clinic client's right to access healthcare. Um, so we took up to waking, waking up at dawn, <laughs> to occupy the steps and front entrance of the clinic uh, of any of the clinics under attack before the anti-choice showed up. We had phone trees—that's right—that um, could get people out to the to clinic within minutes from the community, um, and we we're we we're quite successful in doing this and keeping the clinics open. The anti-choice, I recall, named us. The, le- the Lipstick Lesbians of the Lavender Left, which we, of course, got printed on buttons and more proudly. <laughs> In retrospect, one of the most important things I think we did was organize a longstanding community escort service with local safe houses near the Morgenthaler Clinic on Harvard to help clients get past the anti-choice harassment and into the clinic. This operated every day the clinic was open, um, which with much community support. And I think it gave us the confidence, um, the example and the confidence that grassroots community organizing was the way to ensure the safety of a community. And as we now chant, we keep us safe, rather than increasing policing, which we know makes many Black, Indigenous and, and disenfranchised communities less safe, are less safe. So we also did not, we did not request injunctions around clinics to keep the anti-choice from harassing the clinic clients, as is now the practice in, in most provinces because over-policing is used to harass and control many populations who use the clinic, including black, indigenous, and racialized clients, trans clients, sex workers, porn in a house clients. Injunctions and policing invariably is used against them and against their organized. And finally, we also wrote popular education pieces uh, for many left and mainstream media, promoting our approach to reproductive justice and contributing as much as we could um, to quickly changing public opinion around abortion at that time.
0: Yeah. it's, I mean, it's very interesting to say this for listeners. I was you know, a very young socialist uh, who was encountering this as I was becoming politicized. And the, you know, some of the things you're talking about here were not necessarily, like in terms of, for example, the the um, support for clients wasn't necessarily obvious to a lot of supporters who were going to the mass actions and so on. But just to give you know, a sense that there were, there was quite a range of different kinds of activity that was being, being organized. Um, and um, I was initially involved in, in, uh, Ottawa before I moved to Toronto. And, um, you know, so the OCAC was, well, a Toronto-based group, one that was a reference point for people in many other places. And I recall efforts to uh, OCAC was trying to kind of network um, with like-minded groups in, in other places, uh, groups that kind of shared its its approach um, in terms of the coordination of the, the big pan-Canadian days of action that happened um, and on, on other initiatives. I think there was a brief... It was a short lived, um, attempt to actually create a pan-Canadian network, right? I think it was the pro-choice action network um, that didn't last very long you know, towards the, it might have been very late 80s, or to try to kind of have the, the OCAC wing of the movement, if you like, coordinate on a pan-Canadian level. But, um, I think it's worth mentioning that just for people outside Toronto to recognize that there were others with this similar approach in other, in other cities. Um, I also recall there being some disagreements. So, BCCAC, the BC Coalition for Abortion Clinics, was an important group based in Toronto. But if I'm recalling right, it didn't have the same approach to non reliance on injunctions. That there might have been some difference in approach in terms of when to go, you know, when to use injunctions and um, that kind of thing. So there were certainly debates in the movement that I have vague memories from, from that period. Can you say something about OCAC's relationship to Corral?
1: Sure. And I recall working with the, the BC Coalition of Abortion Plants. They were based out of Vancouver, um, and uh, but I don't recall exactly what the, the differences were at the time. Van Jazam was a premier in BC and tried to defund any hospital abortions in- included. Um, so they had also, a, uh, they were facing a different situation. But um, Carol, we worked together often, especially when um, we jointly called the National Days Faction, of, of which you referred. CAROL had chapters across the country. And during those actions, OCAC and the BC Coalition of Abortion Clinics organized the big city actions, the biggest actions. But the smaller CAROL chapters also organized actions across the country. And I think they were were very well received. But generally, um, CAROL did the lobbying of elected officials and hospital boards. And OCAC did the grassroots organizing of mass actions. Working in coalitions around broader issues and organizing community defense of the abortion clinics, um, it a- I, it actually worked fairly well um, as a, as a as a broader movement um, for reproductive justice.
0: And I'll also just mention: I remember that in, because we've so far been really talking mainly about um, so-called English Canada, but in Quebec there was the Coalition québécoise pour le développement Gratuit, which also uh, had could have pretty good working relations with OCAC, if I recall that, right? Because <laughs> Quebec, there was a very strong you know, movement in, in Quebec, for sure. And then you mentioned, um, uh, it's worth it's worth mentioning that there was this, a, a group um, in Toronto who had members active in OCAC, which was called Toronto Social Feminist Action, or TSFA. Um, could you say something about TSFA and, and what it brought to OCAC? Sure.
1: Um, TSFA members... Um TSFA was made up of many OCAC members, but um, uh, was along with others who worked in many different organizations, um, such as uh, the Canadian Organization for Rights of Prostitutes, um, some labor organizations and others. And they brought the related struggles against criminalization to our organizing. Um, this was a time when Black and racialized women in International Women's Day Committee were challenging us on what gets centered in white women's movement organizing. So in TSFA... We would take on some readings, like we read bell hooks and we read Angela Davis, and we discussed how to center the experiences, demands and perspectives of black, indigenous and racialized women um, and groups in the International Women's Day Committee. So we also, in TSFA, we read and discussed um, enough anti-capitalist literature uh, to form our view of the nature of the state and and now the city in, in the flow of capital. Um, and in the role of policing and incarceration, um, along with healthcare and social work, to control populations. So this helped us formulate demands. All of the, the perspectives of TF- TSFA were not taken on by a, a much broader OCAC coalition, but it helped us formulate demands <clears throat> in the OCAC that tried to be as much as possible tried to be t- transformative of state institutions. Um, and could not be co-opted by reform measures. So um, um, we also, I remember, published a newspaper for several years called the Rebel Girls Rag, (laughs) take off with being on the rag, um, that contributed a bit um, to popular education across the breadth of of anti-oppression
0: struggles. And I think some of those have now been digitized. I'll see if I can include a link in the show notes to where people can get um, those if they're interested in in having a look. So in 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the section of the criminal code that restricted access to abortion, which was a historic victory that certainly wouldn't have been won without the movement organizing. Uh, As Nora Laredo puts it in her book, Take Back the Fight, through meetings, information pickets, blockading protesters at abortion clinics, court challenges, mass demonstrations, fundraising research, and civil disobedience, feminists created the social conditions for Canada's abortion law to be struck down. But the Mulroney federal government then soon tried to restrict access with a bill that would have allowed abortions only if a doctor decided that a woman's health or life was threatened. And uh, for if a doctor violated that law or a person had an illegal abortion, you could get two years in prison. How did the movement respond uh, to this move to try to recriminalize abortion?
1: Yeah, I think that was in, that was in 1989. Um, and um, that was Bill C-43, um, which was positioned as a compromise between the two extremes pro-choice and anti-choice, uh, women's rights and fetal rights, even though a majority of Canadians supported abortion rights at this point. Um, but, and yes, it stated that abortions were only to be performed if a doctor judged that the pregnancy threatened the life or health of the woman, and, but it also restricted uh, abortions to the early stages of pregnancy. Um, in any other case, which could be contended by an outside party, a woman and her doctor could be in prison for up to two years in this proposed new law. Um, a few things happened at the time. As it happens in the, spring of, in the spring and summer of 89, a couple of incidents occurred that helped galvanize public opinion against a new abortion law. In the spring, um, the British Columbia, Columbia Premier Van Der Zandt attempted to remove media coverage for all abortions performed in the province, something that was fought and stopped by the pro-choice movement in BC. And in the summer, a man named Jean-Guy Tremblay was granted an injunction in Quebec preventing his ex-girlfriend Chantelle Daigle from uh, getting an abortion, even though he admitted to physical abuse in the relationship. And in the end, Chantelle was forced to go to Boston to get an abortion. So this really galvanized people uh, against a new law. And we, we, so we organized mass demonstrations against new law. In the fall of 1990, 30 communi- communities, 30 across Canada, took part in the Marching for Women's Lives No New Abortion Law rallies. With three thousand marching in Toronto, for instance, a second about abortion caravan was organized, building on the history of the struggle forty years uh, later. But also to put the struggle in the context, in the context, um, in the year after Bill C forty three was introduced, there was widespread outrage and fightbacks against both the right and a repressive state. This included Women Against Violence Against Women Coalition, formed after the 1989 killing of 14 feminists at Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. 1990 saw the Yoko blockade of a golf course development threatening traditional native lands by Mohawks of Kahnawake, Quebec, and the massive military retaliation and violence there against Indigenous people. The Black Action Defence Committee in Toronto protested the police killings of Sophia Cook, Michael Wade Lawson. Lester Donaldson, Buddy Evans, Albert Johnson, Anthony Griffin and J.J. Harper. And Outrage Canada in Edmonton and Lesbians uh, lesbians and Gays Against Police Violence in Montreal were formed in response to police violence against the LGBT communities in those cities. So this was a time these years, specifically, that people were rising up and directly challenging social and state oppression. And the state can't win when we're all rising up and we're acting together. So in the end, Bill C-43 barely passed, it, I believe, by eight votes in Parliament, um, but was defeated in a tie vote in the Senate, which, if it hadn't happened then, I think was inevitable because of all of this. these fightbacks that, were, that um, understood and promoted their connections um, and that were happening at the same time. Um, and no legislation, of course, has been introduced since.
0: Yeah, I just want to quote from the article that you wrote, um, which I think really captures it in a really good way, as you've just done now, Um, when you wrote that the mobilization of people who took to the streets to fight for sexual and reproductive self-determination and the strength of alliances across struggles in society persuaded the incumbent and future governments that they would not be able to successfully introduce new legislation in this area. And I'm interested if you have any other thoughts on that, or maybe uh, connecting the past to the present lessons, political lessons. You know, we're obviously in a very different political moment now than we were in 1989, 1990, but What might be some of the things we could take away uh, from that experience for organizing today?
1: Yeah, um, well, I think the strength of the fight packs just described, as well as the breadth of support for reproductive justice we built across movements, um, eventually convinced the state they could not win this battle. Um, OCAC's campaigns for reproductive justice were taken up broadly. Um, When the new law was, was tabled in 89, even large stream mainstream organizations opposed it such as the Canadian Labour Congress, National Organization of Immigrant and Visible Minority Women, uh, the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, Planned Parenthood supported it, uh, the Canadian Federation of Students, New Democratic Party, and even the Canadian Medical Association, they all opposed the new law. So conservative governments like that later of Stephen Harper, with many if not a majority of MPs anti-choice, they could not put forward any major, um, or allow any major abortion legislation to be put forward, although there were attempts to get it in the back door, um, for fear of reigniting a very broad and highly organized movement that they knew would be out in the streets again if reproductive or sexual rights were under attack. And what's more, (laughs) the movement is now demanding land back to Indigenous folks, defunding police, drastic action on climate change, decriminalization of sex work, health care for trans folk, justice for workers, and more. We understand that these struggles are, are connected. Although we have much further to go to achieve full access to abortion rights elsewhere, um, across everywhere in Canada and to transform repressive state institutions, kicking abortion out of the criminal code and keeping it out proved what we can achieve if we understand the connections between our struggles and we work together to overturn oppression.
0: Great. Uh, anything else that you'd like to add?
1: I think it's really important to have a win through broad organizing, through connection of struggles. And I think it it is only going to be one of many.
0: Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Cheers. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Kroger, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode, or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.